الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وصحابه ومن استنى بسنة يوم الدين All praise due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on his last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. This evening's topic is the way of the Prophet or the way is only one. The way of the Prophet or the way is only one. Meaning that the prophetic way is only one way. That there is only one way to Allah, to God. For us to achieve or to receive the blessings which Islam has to offer, we can only achieve those blessings following one single path. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Ma'idah has stressed the importance of following the way, that single way, the way which he refers to as the way of the party of Allah, saying, وَمَنْ يَتَوَلَّ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا فَإِنَّ حِزْبَ اللَّهِ هُمُ الْغَالِبُونَ And whoever takes Allah and His Messenger and the believers as supporters, they indeed, then indeed, the party of Allah will be victorious. Indeed, the party of Allah they are the victorious ones. And no matter how much we research in the Quran and the Sunnah, we will not find any praise for division. Not in the authentic Sunnah, we will not find any praise for division. In fact, wherever we find division described, it is described in negative terms. Either Allah uh, curses those people who fall into division, splitting up their ranks, as in Surah Ar-Rum, 30th chapter, verses 31 and 32. وَلَا تَكُونُوا مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ مِنَ الَّذِينَ فَرَّقُوا دِينَهُمْ وَكَانُوا شِيَعًا كُلُّ حِزْبٍ بِمَا لَدَيْهِمْ فَرِحُونَ And do not be of the pagans, of those who split up their religion and became sects, each sect rejoicing in that which it has. This is blameworthy. This is speaking ill of division and splitting of ranks. 
And we find Allah speaking about this splitting leading to weakness and failure. Saying in Surah Al-Anfal, the 8th chapter, verse 46. وَلَا تَنَازَعُوا فَتَفْشَلُوا وَتَذْهَبَ رِيحَكُمْ وَرِيحُكُمْ Do not dispute among yourselves and cause your own failure and loss of power. The Prophet ﷺ had said in a hadith narrated by Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, Indeed, those before you from the people of the book divided into 72 sects. And the followers of this religion will split up into 73 sects. 72 of them will be in the fire and one in paradise. Is this praise of division? No. This is implying that division the process of dividing, the love of uh, sectarianism, factionalism, all of this is despised in Islam. However, there are some common hadiths which are quoted in defense of splitting up different groups, you know, uh, people following different movements, etc., and each one taking its own path. There are hadiths quoted. Among them, اختلاف أمتي رحمة The differences among my nation is a mercy. It's commonly quoted in this regard. However, this quote-unquote hadith is mawdu'ah. Mawdu'ah meaning it is fabricated. For those of you that attended this past week's course in Hadith, Usul uh, al-Hadith or Ulum al-Hadith, you know what mawdu'ah is. Fabricated. Cannot be relied upon. It's a lie. Falsely attributed to Rasulullah Another lie is Ashabi kan nujum bi'ayihim iqtadaytum ihtadaytum My sahaba or my companions are like stars. You will be guided by any one of them that you follow. This is again promoting the idea that if you follow one of them, as long as you're following one, no matter if one goes this way, one goes the other way, you're rightly guided. So it is something praiseworthy. But in fact, this division, this splitting up, is something condemned, not praiseworthy at all. What we find in the Qur'an is a statement which Allah has the Prophet ﷺ say, وَأَنَّ هَذَا صِرَاطِ مُسْتَقِيمًا Indeed, this path of mine is a straight path, so follow it. And on one occasion, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said that, Allah's Messenger drew a line for us in the ground, on the dirt. And He said, this, this straight line which He drew, this is the path of Allah. Then He drew lines going off on either side, like the way the veins of a leaf branch away from the central vein. 
and he said these are the paths on each on the head of each path is a devil calling people to it then he recited that same verse wa anna hadha sirati mustaqiman fattabi'uhu wa la tattabi'u as-subla fatafarraqa bikum an sabili and this is my straight path so follow it and do not follow the other paths as they would separate you from his path from the path of Allah right. in this particular verse from the Quran we notice that when the prophet sallam is made to speak about his path the term used is sirati mustaqiman sirati sirat my path a single path but when he speaks about the paths of the others he uses as-subul the paths the other paths when whenever Allah speaks of the way of the prophet sallallahu it's described as a single path whereas the path of this misguidance is described as a as a path having many branches in it many many different paths so this stresses the 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 concept that there is only one way and ibn al-qayyim had said this is because the path leading to allah is only one and it is what he sent his messengers and sent his books with and no one reaches him except with this path even if people take other paths and try to open every door these paths would be blocked off and these doors would be closed and the exception of this is the one path for indeed it is connected to Allah and leading to him however the high obstacles on this path causes people to doubt it and abandon it and those who have strayed from it have not done so except as a result of their liking for uh, multiplicity their dislike for individuality the haste in reaching their goal and cowardice of bearing its long distance and he said whoever views the path as being very long then his pace will become weakened so there is only one path and that path is the path which we enter islam with it's the same path on which on the basis of which we enter islam when we make our declaration of faith saying ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna muhammadan rasulullah i bear witness that there is no god worthy of worship but allah and that muhammad was a messenger of allah that second part of that declaration of faith is our commitment to that path and i bear witness that muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam was a messenger of allah what we are committing ourselves to is that the way which allah has prescribed for us is the way of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam 
and no good deed which we could think of doing has any value unless it is in keeping or in conformity with the way of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Of course there is another condition for that deed to be acceptable to Allah and that is that it is done sincerely for the sake of Allah. Because if we are doing it only ritualistically as a cultural hand-me-down you know, without any life, any uh, spirit to it, a spirit of belief, of submission to Allah, then of course it has no value. But one cannot just cling on to the spirit and say, I'm not going to follow the external. You know, what is important is the spirit because it is what determines whether a deed is accepted or not, ultimately. But if that deed is not in conformity with the way of the Prophet ﷺ, then it is also not accepted. So it is like the nut or the seed and the coating of the seed. Right? The, this, the essence of that seed is the inner part. But the coating, the covering, protects the inner part. You cannot do with one or the other. You plant the seed without the coating, it dies. You plant the coating without the seed, nothing's coming. Right? So the two have to be together. And Allah tells us, commands us in the Quran in so many verses. وَاَتَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا Hold on firmly to the rope of Allah, all of you, and do not become divided. The command is for unity. And the rope of Allah, what is the rope of Allah? Ibn Mas'ud said, Indeed, the rope of Allah is the book of Allah. And its path, and the path is inhabited by devils. And they call out, O slave of Allah, come. This is the path in order to prevent people from the path of Allah. So hold on to the rope of Allah. And that is the book of Allah. This is the core of the path. This is what we are called to hold on to. And of course, when we hold on firmly to the book of Allah, because you will have some people say, we are holding on firmly to the book of Allah, and we're not interested in the, in the hadith, you know, the hadith, we can't really rely on hadith, but we're holding on firmly to the book of Allah. This is misguidance. Because in saying that, in claiming that, they are not holding on firmly to the book of Allah. Because Allah says in the Quran, وَمَن يُتُعِ الرَّسُولُ فَقَدْ اللَّهِ Whoever has obeyed the Messenger has obeyed Allah. Whatever the Prophet has given you, take it. Whatever he has forbidden you, leave it. How can we follow and know what he gave us? How can we obey him if we are not following the Sunnah and the had- which is brought to us in the Hadith? So, holding on firmly to the Book of Allah, to the rope of Allah, which is the Book of Allah means holding on firmly to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And we have 
well-known hadith of the Prophet in which he said similar things where he said for example uh, in a narration uh, narrated to us by Abdullah ibn Abbas the straight path is that which Allah's messenger left us on and the Prophet said I have left among you two things if you hold on firmly to them you will never go astray the book of Allah and my sunnah تَرَكْتُ فِيكُمْ أَمْرَيْنْ إِنْ تَمَسَّكْتُمْ بِهِمَا لَنْ تَضِلُّ عَبَدًا كِتَابُ اللَّهِ وَسُنَّتِي The book of Allah and my sunnah. And of course, the understanding of the book of Allah itself depends on the sunnah. Allah said in the Quran, وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الذِّكْرَ لِتُبَيِّنَ لِلنَّاسِ مَا نُزِلَ إِلَيْهِمْ and I have revealed to you the reminder, the Qur'an, so that you may explain to the people, you Muhammad وسلم, may explain to the people that which was revealed for them or to them. So the path is one of holding on firmly to the book of Allah and to the sunnah which the book of Allah commands us to follow. Uh, furthermore, we have uh, Prophet Muhammad saying, Whoever amongst you lives on after me will see many differences. So you are to stick to my sunnah and the sunnah of the rightly guided caliphs after me. Hold on to it with your molar teeth and beware of innovated matters for every innovation is bid'ah. Stick to my sunnah and the sunnah of the rightly guided caliphs after me. So Prophet has stressed that in understanding his sunnah, we must also hold on to the sunnah of the rightly guided caliphs who came after him. The rightly guided caliphs being primarily the leading companions, his leading companions. That generation that uh, the leaders of that generation who lived the revelation the Quran was revealed amongst them the Prophet ﷺ lived amongst them he was the example and one of the scholars of the past Ibn Battah had said the first generations remained united on this all together united upon closeness of the hearts and agreement of methodology this is because the book of Allah was their protection and the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ was their imam, their leader. They did not use their own opinions nor did they turn to their desires in understanding and applying the religion. So the hearts of the people who were upon this remained safeguarded with Allah's protection and the souls remained shut off from the whims by Allah's help. And may Allah have mercy on him. He indeed spoke the truth. For the religion of Allah is only one without differences. This is the straight path. This is the one path which leads to Allah. And this is in contradiction to all those who would call us to a multiplicity of paths. Whether it is in a general sense, and you will hear people saying, all religions are one. Yeah. There's one God, 
and all the religions are one. They are like spokes on a wheel, and Allah is the hub. So it doesn't matter which one you follow, as long as you're sincere, as long as you sincerely follow. So whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're Christian, Catholic, Protestant, you know, whatever you are, Muslim, it's all the same. As long as you're sincere, just be sincere in your belief in God, and that will take you to God. Of course, this is rejected. Allah did not reveal many religions. There is one human race with shared characteristics, spiritual, physical, psychological, emotional, shared characteristics. Allah sent prophets with one message. He didn't send them with a variety of messages. As Allah said, وَلَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا أَنْ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهُ وَاجْتَنِبُ الطَّاغُوتِ We sent to every nation a messenger calling them to worship Allah alone and to avoid the worship of false gods. One God one human race, one message brought by the messengers. There were many messengers because, of course, human race is spread over the earth. So a number of messengers were sent, but they all carried one message. Meaning, they only brought one religion. That's why Allah said, إِنَّ الدِّينَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ islam That the religion in the sight of Allah, which is acceptable to Allah, is Islam, nothing else. So all of these others are misguidance. No matter how sincere people may be in following them, they are sincere in misguidance. There is only one way to Allah, and that is Islam. Islam, as was brought by Prophet Adam, Prophet Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, Muhammad wasallam, and all of the other prophets who we don't even know their names. They brought one religion. And whatever exists in the world today of other religions, these are deviations, these are corruptions, man-made uh, ways of life, which are not in keeping with the message that was sent by Allah to humankind. So as there is only one religion, as there is only one religion, and all of these other religions are false, there is not more than one way to Allah, it's just one way. Similarly, that one religion is itself one, not with many different paths, we have Shia Islam, and the Shia Islam could be Buhri Islam, or it could be Aga Khani Islam, or it could be, you know, uh, Imami Islam, or whatever, all the different versions. No. Prophet Muhammad left behind one Islam. His companions understood one Islam. And that is the Islam that we need to follow. 
even the issue of the schools that we live today where people follow different schools of law if these schools of law are looked at as efforts of the scholars to try to uh, understand and to apply the Quran and the Sunnah that one way which is what it was this is what Abu Hanifa was doing this is what Imam Malik was doing this is what Ahmed ibn Hanbal was doing this was what Imam Shafi were doing they're all trying to apply the Quran and the Sunnah to life, daily life the working out the laws, applying, trying to help people to understand how to apply the laws this is what they were doing but where people turn these now into sects where people will actually refer to their madhab as my sect which reached the level where as I've mentioned before in lectures you had four different prayers going on around the Kaaba it reached that state of deterioration where Muslims conducted four different prayers for each prayer in Mecca when the time for Salat came those people who are making tawaf, who are Malikis, they would line up when the adhan was, after the adhan was given, the iqam was made, they would line up behind the Maliki Imam and they would finish their prayer. When they were finished, then the Shafi'i Imam would stand and all the Shafi'is who were making tawaf would come and line up behind him and pray. And so on, behind the Hanafi and behind the Hanbali. Muslims had reached that point reached the point where in the Hanafi Madhab it was ruled that it was not permissible for a Hanafi to marry a Shafi'i. Is this what the Prophet Muhammad left behind? No. This is not what the Prophet left behind. This is something of people's making. People made this. People created this. This was not the religion of Rasulullah this is misguidance, misunderstanding. And if you listen to the statements of the scholars, the early scholars with regards to this, you will see that this was not their way of thinking at all. For example, Imam Malik was asked, I heard, uh, one of the students of Imam Malik said, I heard Imam Malik and Imam Al-Layth was the Imam in Egypt. Both say the following concerning the differences amongst the Sahaba. People say there is leeway for them in it, but it is not so. It was a case of wrong and right rulings. People say there is leeway, meaning it doesn't matter which of the Sahaba you follow, no problem. No. Those Imams said no. Some were right and some were wrong. And if you know what is the right and what is the wrong, then you must follow the right. That is your responsibility. Ashab, another of Imam Malik's students said, Imam Malik was once asked whether one was safe to follow a ruling related to him by reliable narrators who heard it from the companions of the Prophet He replied, no. By Allah, not unless it is correct. The truth is one. Can two opposing opinions be simultaneously correct? The opinion which is correct can only be one. So when we look at issues of schools of law, etc., we have to look at them in the light of 
right and wrong. We cannot say they are all correct. And this is a common saying. People say, you must follow a madhab. If you don't follow a madhab, your imam is shaitan. It's a common phrase. You hear this amongst people who are very much into madhab. So much so, that I remember reading in one book, uh, where the author put, said that, you know, when Munkar and Nakir will come and ask you in the grave, what is your religion? What is your prophet? What was the religion you followed? And he will also ask, Wama madhabuk? And what was your madhab? It's a lie. Fabrication. A lie. You know, because people are so locked into this thing. But the reality is that these schools, every one of them contain errors. They were the efforts of human beings and as such they're imperfect. So for anybody to say, I am going to follow this one blindly, this is a person who has not understood Islam. The only person that we follow blindly is Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That was the shahada. When we said, wa ashadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah, that was our declaration stating that we would follow Muhammad sallallahu blindly. Meaning, if he told us to do something and we didn't understand the reason behind it, we would still go ahead and do it. Any other human being tells us to do something, we need to know the reason. We don't just go and do it blindly. No, we ask them why. We'll try to find out why. Now, there are things which Prophet ﷺ told us, which Allah told us, where the reason is discernible. We can determine it. Or Allah has mentioned it. The Prophet ﷺ has explained why. But there are also certain things which they have told us to do, and there is no explanation. No explanation given. So what do we do? This now comes to our belief. If we believe that Allah is Allah, and that Muhammad was the messenger of Allah, then we will follow their instructions, even if we don't understand why. That is submission. And that submission is only due to Allah. We do it to what the Messenger ﷺ has told us, because in doing it to what the Messenger told us, we are doing it to Allah. Not because we are submitting to Muhammad ﷺ, no. That is a mistake to think that we are submitting our wills to Muhammad ﷺ. No, we are submitting our wills to Allah. We submit, our, we submit our wills to Allah by following what Allah has said in the Qur'an and what Allah has said through Muhammad in his sunnah. Because the sunnah, the hadith, convey to us revelation. As Allah said in the Qur'an, وَمَا يَنْتِقْوَانِ الْهَوَىٰ إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُحَىٰ He did not speak from his own desires. What he told you was revelation which came to him. So that's why we submit. And in submitting to what Prophet ﷺ has told us, we are in, in submission to Allah. مَن يُتِعَ الرَّسُولُ فَقَدْ أَطَاعَ اللَّهِ Whoever obeys the Messenger has obeyed Allah. So, when we look at the instructions with regards to following the, the Sunnah and the way of the Prophet ﷺ and, and the uh, companions, we find a number of hadiths, as I mentioned before, where we're, and we're told to follow the way of the Prophet ﷺ and his rightly guided caliphs to avoid innovation, etc. And at the same time, 
we find in the practice of the Sahaba themselves, you know, an opposition, as I said, to any kind of uh, disagreement amongst themselves. Uh, we find, for example, uh, disagreements where people are going to opinions and not following the Sunnah. We find, for example, a statement, uh, Urwa ibn al-Zubair, Urwa, uh, once said to Ibn Abbas, Woe be unto you, you are sending people astray. You are instructing them to make Umrah in the ten days before Hajj. And there is no Umrah then. Umrah is not permitted then. Abdullah ibn Abbas said to him, Go ask your mother. Go ask your mother. And he said, Abu Bakr and Omar, they didn't say what you're saying. And they have more knowledge of Allah's Messenger. And, are more, and they are more firm in, in keeping to his sunnah than you are. Ibn Abbas replied, So this is where you are coming from. I tell you what Allah's Messenger has said. And you come to me with what Abu Bakr and Omar said. Woe be to you. Are, there, are they more preferable to you? Or what is in Allah's book and the sunnah of his messenger? Which was left among his companions and his ummah. I see them falling into destruction. I say Allah's messenger said. And he says Abu Bakr and Omar forbade. Even on the level of the companions themselves. Some of them based on knowledge which they had, they made certain decisions. And in the end, what do we do with those decisions? You know, for example, you know, uh, Omar, radiallahu anhu, he ruled that the stating of three divorces, uh, one after the other, will be held as three divorces. But Prophet ﷺ said, when a man came to him and said, I divorced my wife the number of times there are stars in the sky. He said, that's one divorce. He said, that's one divorce. Okay. This was the sunnah. The sunnah of Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. And when he said, follow my sunnah and the sunnah of the, the Khulafa Rashidin, he didn't say, follow my sunnah and a rightly guided caliph, because we had four, but he said the rightly guided caliphs, meaning what they all agreed on. Not what one or two held, but what they all agreed on. So, we are obliged to follow what came uh, in the sunnah, which was agreed upon by the followers of the Prophet ﷺ and the following and the understanding of what Islam is, what the Quran and the Sunnah was, is the understanding which they held. As Allah said, وَمَن يُشَاقِقِ الرَّسُولِ مِن بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُ الْهُدَى نُوَلِّهِ مَا تَوَلَّى وَنُصْلِهِ جَهَنَّمُ and whoever opposes the messenger after guidance has been made clear to them 
and follows a way other than that of the believers, I will leave him to his choice and place him in hell, an evil end. And follows a way other than that of the believers. Who was that verse referring to when it was revealed? It was referring to who were the believers then? The companions of the Prophet Muhammad Following a way other than the way which they went, they followed. That is misguidance. Guaranteed misguidance. And in another uh, narration of the Prophet in which he said that uh, the Christians would be the Jews would be divided up into 71 sects, the Christians into 72 sects, and he said, you and my nation will be divided into 73 sects. He went on to say, uh, and only one is in, in, in paradise, and the companions asked him, which one is that, O Messenger of Allah? And he said, the one which I am on, and you are on. The one which I am on, and you are on. So, Understanding the way of the Prophet Muhammad is through the understanding of his companions, not according to how we in our times may interpret things. You know, for example, today one uh, sister came and asked me about wearing niqab, that she had decided to wear niqab, and her parents were both. Religious, religious people, they were opposed to her tooth and nail. The father was saying, the mother was from the point of view of marriage prospects. She said, well, you know, if you're wearing niqab, then how are we going to find somebody to marry you? Right? Nobody can see you, nobody... You know, this was her rationale. She was looking at it more on the emotional level, right? Uh, marriage. Whereas the father was saying, no, this niqab is Arab culture. It is from the Arab, you know, cultural practices. It's not Islam. In fact, you are being extreme in wanting to do this. This is the modernist understanding. And you'll hear it echoed. The point is that the wearing of the niqab was done in the time of Prophet Muhammad It's not to say it was compulsory for all the women. It was compulsory for his wives because their case was special. They could not marry anyone after Prophet ﷺ when he died. And to help to remove any possibility of people developing any kind of feelings and desires for them and vice versa, etc., they were veiled from the people in general. But the, many of the women who were around Prophet's wives, they also covered themselves wearing the niqab, etc., and this is why you can find in the hadith concerning Hajj, where Prophet ﷺ had said, you know, for women, when they are going for Hajj, that they should not wear niqab or gloves. The fact that he's telling them not to wear niqab meant that they were wearing niqab, that it existed amongst them. So it was a part of what was approved by the Prophet ﷺ. And it is something commendable. It is something recommended. It is something which Islam not only approves of, but also honors. Right? So to refer to it as being Arab culture, this is misguidance. Now this is modern interpretation, right? And of course, 
there may be aspects which were, we could say, localized. The idea of wearing black. Now, wearing black, we cannot say that the religion says women should wear, their, wear black. That this is what they have to wear. That is, and that was common to Arabia. That was the preferable color which they used. And as people from Arabia, Muslims spread to different parts of Muslim land, they carried that with them. But, in reality, Islam does not prescribe that a woman wear black. It could be brown, it could be green, but in whatever, the colors are preferable though. There are darker colors in the sense that they should not be uh, eye-catching, like bright yellow, bright red, you know, flashy flowers and colors and, you know, because the whole idea of trying to discourage, you know, people staring and being attracted and things like this is lost by, you know, wearing garments which become equivalent to the garment that you're supposed to be covering with your outer garment. Right? So, these kind of interpretations, you know, these uh, we have to be aware of and know that the only way to interpret and to understand the Sunnah of the Prophet is to understand it as the companions had. And we have an example from the life of Imam Ahmed who was jailed because of his uh, opposition to those who were claiming that the Quran was created right? and that the law was everywhere. In any case, he was brought before the Caliph and he deba debated with one of those who were promoting these deviant ideas at the time. And he said to the person, when the person was a representative of this innovative, innovative views, he said, inform me about this matter which you are calling people to. Is it something which Allah's Messenger called people to? His claim that the Quran was created, Allah is everywhere. Could you find any hadith is there something in hadith that the Prophet ﷺ said this? He told people, come and believe this. The innovator said, no. Imam Ahmed then asked him, is it something that Abu Bakr Siddiq called people to after him? Or Omar ibn al-Khattab? Or Uthman? Or Ali? He said, no. So he said, so it is something that neither Allah's Messenger, nor Abu Bakr, nor Omar, nor Uthman, nor Ali, may Allah be pleased with them all, call to. Yet you are calling people to it. It is not then unreasonable for me to say that they either knew this matter or they were ignorant of it. Either they were aware of this or they were ignorant of it. If you say that they were aware of this matter, yet they remain silent, does that make sense? That they knew this, this is the correct belief, correct understanding, but they remain silent? That is obvious, obviously wrong. And if you say that they were ignorant of it, but I know it, then, O oh, wicked son of a wicked one, the Prophet ﷺ and his rightly guided caliphs were unaware of something, yet you and your friends know about it. You know, this is the claim when a person innovates in the religion, whether he introduces celebration of the Prophet's birthday, you know, or 
whatever other innovative uh, practice celebration of the you know the uh, new year with the hijra you know new year celebration other these other kinds of celebrations that people have introduced amongst themselves what in fact are they saying they are claiming basically that they know something that the Prophet ﷺ and his companions didn't know. Or, they knew about it and they hid it. One or the other. But Prophet Muhammad ﷺ said, تَرَكْتُكُمْ عَلَى مَحَجَّةٍ بَيْضَى لَيْلُهَا كَنَهَارِهَا لَا يَزِيغُ عَنْهَا إِلَّا هَالِكَ I've left you on a clear white slate, whose night is like its day. And no one deviates from this except is destroyed. The religion is clear. The night of the religion is like the day of the religion. No difference. Night and day, usually we use this as a metaphor for the opposites. The night is, this thing is like, the difference between them is like day and night, we say. But in Islam, there's no difference. The day is like its night. And whoever deviates from this path, is destroyed. This is the clarity. This is the religion of Islam. And somebody may say, okay, I'm not trying to bring anything Prophet didn't do. But what I'm doing is something which is good. It's a good thing. We'll call it bid'ah hasana. A good bid'ah. Right? Because, you know, it is good for us to remember Rasulullah on his birthday. You know, this makes us closer to Allah. You know, it reminds us about Allah, reminds us about the message which the Prophet brought. So this is a good thing. How can you say we shouldn't do it and it's a good thing? Well, Prophet said, مَا تَرَكْتُ شَيْئًا يُقَرِّبُكُمْ إِلَى اللَّهِ إِلَّا وَأَمَرْتُكُمْ بِهِ I have not left anything which will bring you closer to Allah without instructing you to do it. He said that. Meaning that you cannot find anything today which will bring you closer to Allah which Prophet didn't tell us to do. If you found something, it's not bringing us closer to Allah. That's what this means. Just as Imam Malik said, on the day when the verse was revealed, اليوم أكملت لكم دينكم Right? Today, the religion has been perfected or completed for you. He said, whatever was not religion on that day can never be religion. Whatever was not a part of the religion of Islam on the day when that verse was revealed can never ever be religion. That is the correct understanding. And this was the way of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. And what we find, Allah saying in Surah An-Nisa, the fourth chapter, verse 59, Allah there says, ta'wila." And if you dispute in any matter, then return it to Allah and His Messenger. If you indeed believe in Allah on the last day, that is better and more suitable for determination. Where we have 
differences where we have different opinions etc and this is natural we as human beings will never escape differences differences will remain amongst us but the question is how do we resolve our differences what do we do with these differences do we say you have yours and I have mine you go your way I go mine yeah. as Allah described in the very beginning describing those who become like the kuffar every sect or every group is happy with what he has he goes his way he goes this way I have mine doesn't matter you can do whatever you want to do I've got mine no Allah tells us here that when we dispute we have to take it back to Allah and the messenger this is the way in which we resolve the differences amongst us now we do have a number of different organizations which function within the Muslim world today whether it's Jamaat-e Islami, Jamaat Tabligh, Ikhwan al Muslimin, Mursi movement, whatever, we have a bunch of different groups. And these groups have leaderships. And the leaderships call people to make bay'ah to them, to give oaths of allegiance, to follow. Follow them, you know, all the time. Come hell or high water, they say. You follow him. The sunnah, the way of the companions, was that bay'ah was only given to the khalifa, the head of the Muslims. Not to any Omar, Khalid, Hassan, who pops up. He says, I've got a group. I got the best way. Make bay'ah to me and follow my way. No. There is a hadith narrated by Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman. He said, the people used to ask Allah's messenger about the good. But I used to ask him about the evil, lest I should be overtaken by it. This hadith is in Sahih Bukhari, volume 9. So I said, O messenger of Allah, we are living in ignorance and in a bad atmosphere then Allah brought us this good Islam will there be any evil after this good and he said yes I said will there be any good after that evil he replied yes but it will be tainted I asked what will be its taint he replied there will be some people who will guide others not according to my tradition. You will approve of some of their deeds and disapprove of others. And I asked, will there be evil after that good? And he replied, yes. There will be some people calling at the gates of hell. And whoever will respond to their call will be thrown into the hellfire. And I asked, O Messenger of Allah, will you describe them to us? He said, they will be from our own people and will speak our language I said what do you order me to do if such a state should take place in my lifetime he said stick to the jama'ah the main group of Muslims and their imam 
Who is that? The ruler, the Khalifa, Amirul Mu'mineen. So I said, and if there is neither a group of Muslims, Muslims are all scattered up, splintered up into all these different countries with nationalities and everything else, nor an Imam, a Khalifa, to whom all of the Muslims can rally. He said then, فَاعْتَزِلْ تِلْكَ الْفِرَقَ كُلَّهَا Then turn away from all of these sects, even if you have to bite the roots of a tree till death overtakes you while you're in that state. This is the guidance. This is the statement of Rasulullah What is this telling us in practical terms? It's telling us not to commit ourselves to any organization which seeks to divide itself from the mass of Muslims. This is what it's telling us. It's not telling us don't organize, don't try to do things in an organized way. This is the Discover Islam Center here. You know? I don't stand up and say, hey, we need to close down the center now, you guys are, <laughs> you know, don't do anything. No. This is not a group seeking to divide itself from Muslims. I am the director. I'm not calling people to make bay'ah to me. <laughs> okay? This is just a, a means of organizing da'wah activities. We come, we go, I come, other people can come. You know, this is not, it is just an organization to try to do things in an organized way. That's all. But where that organization transforms itself into a movement where you now have a leader who calls people to give the oath of allegiance to him, where now you're going to follow and then you start to look at people who are not a part of your group with the, what they call the us and them mentality. You know the us and them mentality? If you're not with us, then you're against us. Right? That looking at people with doubt, because what we're on, this is the right thing. Anybody who's not with us, making the bear along with us, they are off. They're misguided. Right? And you'll hear that in ignorance. You have some people who say, when they do their Islamic work, they call it, Fi Sabilillah. The path of Allah. We're on the path of Allah. So, you might be going to make jihad. And they will ask you, have you gone out Fi Sabilillah? So I'm going to make jihad. No, I said, did you go out for 40 days? I mean, <laughs> hey, hey, you know, they have turned 40 days now into feasibility If you're not doing these 40, you're not feasibility This is misguidance. This is misguidance. The way of the Prophet Muhammad and his companions, that is the way. What they understood Fisabilillah to be, that is Fisabilillah. The way in which they conducted da'wah, conveying the word of Allah to the people, the non-Muslims, the people in their communities, people outside the communities, that is the way to do it. And any other way is doomed to failure. Failure, not necessarily meaning they will have few followers, because an organization may have millions and millions of followers. They may be very huge and, you know. But is the issue one of numbers? If the issue were one of numbers, then we would have to say 
Muslims are astray. Right? Because they are not the majority on the earth. Some people will ask, since Islam is the right way, why aren't the most of human beings Muslims? Right? You can't argue from that point of view. If most of the Muslims are going to the graves and praying to the saints, and only you guys, Wahhabis, you know, Ali Hadith, you know, any other, what they consider to be a dirty name they can throw on you, right? You don't want to go to these uh, the shrines, you don't want to honor the saints. Everybody else is doing it. If the issue are numbers, then we'd have to say they are right. right? So the issue is not the issue of numbers. There's never been an issue of numbers. The issue is concept. If the concept is correct, even if only one person is following it, as Allah referred to Prophet Ibrahim as an ummah, all by himself. The whole of his people, everybody were into idol worship, but he alone was off. And he was right. So, it is important for us to consider the way the way of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu that that way was one way there are no two ways about it of course within that way there may be variation in the sense that in prayer one may raise one's hands to the ears or one may raise one's hands shoulder height Prophet Muhammad did both. So within that way, there, are, there is variation. And wherever Prophet ﷺ has given us variation, we are free to follow any of the variants. But in the variation, there is still one way. Because even though we may be following some of the variants, each one of those variants represents a part of that way. So, my brothers and sisters, let us reflect on how much or to what degree we are in fact following that way. Knowing that it is the only way to Allah. It is the only way to success. It is the only way to paradise. Inshallah, that is the or that is what I wanted to share with you this evening. Um, if you have any questions now, we can look at your questions and hopefully the questions will be on the topic you know where we can further elucidate that way we can further reflect on the way okay our brother's question that some people say that those who are calling to what has been labeled as Wahhabism or Ahli Hadithism. You know, that is basically those who are saying what I just finished saying. Follow the Quran and the Sunnah as it was understood by the companions of the Prophet Muhammad And this is also referred to as the way of the Salaf. Salaf meaning the pious predecessors. The early generation of Muslims about whom Prophet said, Khairun Nasi Qarni the best of people are my generation. 
then those who follow them, then those who follow them. So they say, those people who are calling to this way, they do not represent the jama'ah or the main body of Muslims. For the last hundreds of years, the main body of Muslims are those who go to the graves, pray to the saints, you know, blindly follow the madhabs and all these other things. So, this is evidence that those people calling to this way of the Salaf have deviated. But, this is not the case. The way, as we said, was not in terms of numbers. The jama'ah doesn't necessarily mean the majority of Muslims. It means those who are following the way of the Qur'an and the Sunnah as it was understood by the Sahaba. That is the jama'ah. Even if that jama'ah ends up to be one person, two people, three people, that is the jama'ah. Uh-huh. Okay, our brother mentioned that there are other oaths which are being given. <coughs> Perhaps the most significant of them is the oaths which uh, some organizations uh, refer to as the oath of guidance. Bay'atul Irshad. Right? That people when they make their oath of allegiance to the, to the leader of a movement or a group, it is an oath to follow their guidance. Again, there is really no distinction. This is actually the way of the mystics. You know, the Tasawwuf, the Sufi. Sufis who had, the peers who had their followers make their bay'ah. This was the bay'ah of Irshad. That they must now blindly follow their sheikh the way that Musa was supposed to follow Khidr. This is what they're saying. You should be to your sheikh like Musa was supposed to be to Khidr. This is Bayatul Irshad. But this is nonsense. That kind of blind following is due only to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In fact, in the time of the Prophet when he sent out a platoon, and the leader of the platoon went off, he had a nervous breakdown or whatever, and he told the people in his platoon to gather up sticks and to make a fire. And when they gathered it up, made this big bonfire, he told them, ride into it. He was their Amir. He told them, ride into it. And they said, hey, we joined Islam to get away from the fire, not to go into it. You know, they refused. So when they went back to Rasulullah and they asked him about it, right, about this case, he said, if you had ridden into the fire, you would have never ridden out. 
In other words, you made the right decision. You don't follow your Amir blindly. You don't follow him blindly. The only one we follow that in that way is Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi So this so-called Bayatul Irshad is a, an extension of the Sufi Bayat, which demands of its followers blind following, which is in itself a bid'ah, innovation rejected by Islam. A friend who is a non-Muslim says that God exists within everybody. How can I refute her? Well. Ask her about those people who go to hell. Right? And it's assuming she is a Christian believing that there is a hell. Right? What about those people who go to hell? It means then that a part of God is being punished in hell. This is crazy. God is good, you know. How then can you justify punishing a part of God in hell? This is falsehood. If she is a Hindu who believes that the soul, the Atman, is Brahman, is the universal soul, it's one and the same thing, you still have a same similar concept that that soul, due to its karma, will suffer, right? It has done bad, and it suffers. So you're basically saying again, in this life, not in hell, because they don't believe in hell, that you suffer, your hell is in this life. A part of God will suffer in this life. It's falsehood, misguidance. I've read that it was the opinion of some of the Sahaba that covering the face was fard. I've never read that. And that the meaning of Surah Al-Ahzab, according to their view, uh, could you clarify this? Surah Al-Ahzab. Well, we need to know which verse they are specifically referring to. Uh, is this the verse? Who asked the question? Is this the verse on the Jilbab? Whoever asked the question, can you confirm which one you're speaking of? Anyway, uh, the point is that the covering of the face was not held by the early generations of Muslims and Muslim scholarship, etc., to be obligatory. Women in the time of Prophet Muhammad did not cover their face, although at the same time women did. They both existed. There are enough hadiths to confirm this. And the final uh, Hajj of the Prophet ﷺ, in which he was riding on his camel with Fadl ibn Abbas sitting behind him and a woman got up to ask him some questions about Islam and while she was talking to him she noticed, he noticed, Prophet ﷺ noticed that her eyes were looking towards Fadl the one who was sitting on the back, Fadl ibn Abbas. And he turned and looked at Fadl, and he saw Fadl was staring at her. So, what would those who say it is compulsory for the woman to cover her face do at this point? They would have said to the woman, Woman, cover your face. Because the wives of the Prophet Aisha and the others said, whenever, when we were on Hajj, whenever men came near us, 
we used to take our outer garment and shield ourselves from them. So, what did the Prophet ﷺ say? He didn't say anything. He just turned Fadl's head. <laughs> After he turned Fadl's head and he continued to speak, he noticed she was still looking and Fadl had turned his head again. So he turned his head again. <laughs> this is a companion of the Prophet ﷺ. He's young. He's young companion. But the point is that his action in dealing with it is clear evidence that the face is not compulsory. Covering the face is not compulsory. And of course, those who try to argue, of course, there's no hadith to support them. They try to argue it from logic. They say, well, the most beautiful part of the woman is the face. So if you're covering up everything else but the face, what's the point? This is the logical argument, right? So, we say, as Ali radiallahu anhu said, if the religion was based purely on logic, then the bottom of the socks has more right to be wiped than the top. When you're making wudu, and you're going to wipe your socks, it makes more sense, logic, to wipe the bottom than the top. Because you walk around on it, it's the bottom that got dirty. When we're making ghusl and wudu, we're washing the parts of our hand, there's cleaning involved here. There's, you know, tahara, we're cleaning. So, logically, we should wipe the bottom of the sock, not the top. But, he said, I saw the Messenger of Allah wipe the top and not the bottom. So, we say to them, you argue that the most beautiful part of the woman is her face. What is the logic in covering the rest of it except her face? We can then ask you, what is the most beautiful part of a woman's face? What is it? Her eyes. And you are showing her eyes. <laughs> so, now you're saying that you must cover everything, including her eyes. And then what is she to do? Huh? See, even those who claim you have to cover it, it's compulsory, they're still showing the eyes, the most beautiful part of the face. So then what is the point? You see, if you don't go the route of logic. Let's go the route of hadith. If we have hadith to support, then bring the hadith. If we don't have it, then submit. Do you believe that Muhammad Sallallahu is an ordinary human being like us? To not believe that is to go against the Quran itself. To not believe that Muhammad Sallallahu was a human being like us is to go against the Quran itself. Allah says in the Quran, "Qul innama ana basharum mithlukum." Say, O Muhammad, indeed I am only a man like you all. So for anyone to say, Muhammad wasn't a man like us, that is going against the clear statements of the Quran. Of course, the verse goes on to say, after saying, قُلْ إِنَّمَا أَنَا بَشْرُ مِثْلُكُمْ يُحَا إِلَيَّ أَنَّمَا إِلَهُكُمْ إِلَهُمْ وَاحِدٌ 
But the difference is that it has been revealed to me. Revelation has come to me. This is what makes the difference. Not his humanity. As a human being, he was a human being like the rest of us. Meaning that the fabricated hadith, the spurious invented hadith of those who claim that Allah, before he created anything, his light shone. And from his light, Muhammad was created. This is a lie. This is falsehood. And from this light, according to the Shia, it split into two. It was Muhammad and Ali. The light split into two. And then they have their own story. Right? This is, these are lies. These are lies. Allah created the world and He created the human beings in it. Some of those human beings He revealed to them what He did not reveal to others. Those are the human beings we refer to as prophets. And this is what separates them from the rest of human beings. They made mistakes. They were human beings. They were not free totally from error. Question. Are you trying to imply that one should not cover the face or that it is not compulsory? I think it's quite clear that I'm only saying it's not compulsory. I said already, in the time of Prophet it was compulsory for the wives of the Prophet Some of the Muslim women, they covered their faces also. And it was something commendable, something which is praiseworthy. And I even gave you the example of the father who was opposed to his daughter covering her face and that this was wrong on his part. It was a modernist interpretation. No, of course not. Covering the face is something commendable. A woman is rewarded for it if she's doing it not because it's the style. Not because it's the style. And for example, in Saudi Arabia, where women are all obliged, Saudi women are all obliged to cover their faces. So women are, women are wearing the, the covering of their faces because it is a cultural imposition, not because they believe it in their hearts. You see, so those who do it, they are doing it, they are not rewarded for it, because they are only doing it because of force on them. So covering the face, a woman choosing to cover her face, this is something commendable. Allah will reward her if she's doing it out of humility, trying to avoid stares of men, she wants to be more anonymous, whatever. These are good thoughts, these are good intentions, and she is rewarded from it. It is part of the sunnah, it is not something which is Arab culture, it is part of the sunnah, and uh, something which Islam recommends, but does not hold compulsory. Fast for death is given to those who attends, is it feast for death? Feast. A feast for death is given to those who attend the funeral after the dead person has been buried. A friend told me that this is deviated from the teachings of the Sunnah. They can, then can one say that the feast is held just to say thanks for those who attended and helped in the funeral? Is this wrong in the Islamic point of view? It is not from the Sunnah. What the Prophet ﷺ instructed, if a family loses someone, a loved one, from the family. Then, 
the community, the neighbors, those who are close to them, they are encouraged to prepare, prepare food and give it to them. Not to go and to hang out in their houses, right? And to oblige them to go and cook. And they're suffering, they're sorrowing. They're sorrowing and now they have to go cook up all this food and prepare for all these people. And not. No. No. Prophet ﷺ instructed the uh, companions that they, when somebody died, should give to that person because they are bereaved. They are suffering. Help them by giving them food. And they are allowed to do this for three days, right? Morning. So this is the sunnah. We don't need to have a feast you know, so we've had somebody die, we're going to have a feast uh, to, as they say, give thanks to those who attended the funeral. No, it's, oblig- it's, it's obligatory on them. They get, they get reward for attending the funeral. We have to reward them now with food? No, no. This is not from Islam. Okay, brother is asking about what is known, I guess, in Pakistan and India as Quran Khani. When a person is, uh, has died, that people gather people together that night after Isha and they divide the Quran, they have the Quran divided up into ajza, different Jews, and they give each person one and they all try to read it. And of course, they're all reading one on top of the other. They're not, they're not like one's reading and everybody's listening to it, but they're all reading one on top of the other, so it's just a whole set of mumbling and Quran on top of Quran and all these kind of things, okay? So they do this, and they try to do it as many times as possible, you know, to, and after the reward for this be given to the dead person. This is bid'ah. This is innovation in Islam. It is not from the sunnah at all. It has no basis in the sunnah at all. It is innovation. It goes against the instructions of the Qur'an, that when the Qur'an is recited, to listen to it, first and foremost. And then, the idea that somebody else, not related to this person at all, can do a good deed and say, give it to this person. This is not in keeping with this sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ and what he taught us. He said, when a person dies, they are cut off from all good except from three channels. Either they have given sadaqah, which is of continual value, right? continuing charity, or they have passed on some knowledge which continues to benefit people, so they continue to get reward from it. Or a righteous child, didn't say a friend, somebody in another country altogether who has been paid or whatever, no. A righteous child who prays for him or her. That benefits them. Why? Because that righteous child is from the deeds of that dead person. Meaning, if the parent was corrupt to the bone, they died in a state of corruption, but their child found Islam and found truth. Right? 
the prayers of that child for the parent, will it benefit that parent or not? This is questionable. This is questionable. Because that child was not the product of that parent. Just as when Prophet Nuh's son, right, refused to get on the boat and drowned. And he said, it's my child. To Allah, Allah said, it's not from your work. It is a bad deed. That's the different. That's a different direction. What about the, the highest uh, grandchild? You know, praying for the grandfather. Child and grandchild, same thing. When it, when it, when it says a pious child, it means anybody down the line who has been a product of the work of that person. Praying for the dead, right? To go to the grave and to ask Allah to forgive this person is beneficial. We can do that. This is what we are doing in Salatul Janazah. We are also praying for that dead person. So it can benefit them, yes. No, the brother is saying that some of the, the deviant groups, they claim that the Prophet ﷺ said there would never be ijma of the deviants. So therefore, since they are the majority, we must be the deviants. Of those who call to the way of the companions. The Prophet ﷺ said, لا يجتمع أو لا تجتمع أمتي على الضلالة. My nation will not agree upon misguidance. Has the nation agreed upon misguidance? No. Yes, there's a big group that hold this misguidance, and they're they're agreed upon it. But the whole of the Ummah has not agreed. Us, our existence is proof that Dalala is there. That is the proof of it, of misguidance. So, but if you look amongst us all, there are things that we all agree upon. We all agree that five times daily prayer is required. That is the ijtima, and that is the one which is guidance. Pig's teeth. Okay, so what do you want to do with this now? 
<laughs> okay, our brother is saying here that he has a Hindu friend who becomes an untrustworthy witness who told him that he has researched the various formulas for drinks and etc. And he found that in the... Excuse me, please. Sisters. He found that uh, in the formula for Pepsi and other uh, products, Western pop drinks or whatever, that in their secret formula they use uh, pig's teeth. So what should we do? Well, as I said, first and foremost, it's well known that the secret formulas are called secret formulas because they don't reveal it. Okay? So he doesn't know what is inside there. <laughs> okay? And just the story. He just tries to shake you. You know? Mess with your mind. You know, what are you going to do now? <laughs> okay? So, don't worry about it. Just leave it. Those are good questions. Now, about the one part. Okay, about following a leader. Excuse me, sisters. Please. Why is there another conversation going on there? You know, if you have a question... Please ask it. If you feel you don't have any more benefit to take from our presentation, then don't disturb the others, please. Yeah, about following a leader and giving forth, okay, because nowadays we all Muslims require leadership or we lack leadership. Everybody says that. So, for a common cause, for the benefit of Muslims, uh, one person is not enough and they have to form a jama, maybe it's called a jihad or something. Then, we have to choose a leader for Okay. Okay, so one, once we choose a leader, we have to follow that leader. Okay, and maybe mostly it is used in jihad. So, we have to follow the leader blindly because his decision is final decision. And we can't call what is the yoke in our time. Okay. Brothers are saying, suggesting that <clears throat> in certain circumstances like jihad, uh, where today uh, we have to form groups and we choose a leader, the Amir, and uh, we need to follow that Amir blindly. Because in the case of Jihad, you know, we can't be second-guessing the Amir, etc., etc. I mean, and this is the position of the American army. This is the position of the American army. If an officer tells a grunt, the main person, foot soldier, to do something and he disobeys a command that is considered to be treason, you know, you know, punishable. You can be put in jail for it. You can be all kinds of things can happen. You refuse to obey a command. Right? So this is the, this is the explanation they gave for the Mai Lai massacre which took place in Vietnam, right? Where the commander told them to go and kill all the villagers. And they went and they did it. Because the commanding officer told them to do it. Well, some of them felt, it's not good, it's not right. But at the time, they had to obey. Because we're in jihad. I mean, it wasn't their, their, they call it jihad, of course. But they looked at it as being a righteous fight. They're in that thing, so they had to do it. But didn't I mention that the Amir told his followers to ride into the fire? And they refused? That is the answer. We don't follow him blindly. If he commands us to do something which is clearly against the book of Allah, we disobey. As the Prophet ﷺ said, لا طاعة لمخلوق في معصية الخالق. Because normally what happens is the followers, like they will not know many things. 
Well, if they don't know what Islam is, then better they go learn Islam before going to do jihad. <laughs> so they don't go out there and get themselves killed over the wrong thing, with the wrong belief. You know, this is the point. You know, we don't, Islam does not call to blind following except in the case of Rasulullah Yes, you should obey your Amir, you know, in the case of jihad, obey Amir, as long as he does not command you to do something which you know to be against the teachings of Islam. Okay, brother's question. Since most people, is, was this your question? I was going to read it next. Was this yours regarding following the four pious imams, Imam Shafi, Imam Hanafi? Is that yours? Okay, so I'll just read it also. Alhamdulillah, they were great scholars of Islam and have done a lot of research on the Prophet's life. I don't think following any one of them is wrong. Though they may differ, but they all taught the way of the Prophet The difference may be because the Prophet uh, did things in all these ways. <clears throat> well, I don't feel that following one of them is wrong either. However, if one follows them blindly, that is wrong. This is where the wrongness lies, in following them blindly. They themselves forbade it. They themselves were opposed to it. They themselves and their students studied under everybody who was available, gathered all the knowledge they could and they changed their opinions according to knowledge as it came to them. They are the same ones, Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, and Shafi both said, إِذَا صَحَّ الْحَدِيثِ فَهُوَ مَذْهَبِي If the hadith is authentic, that is my true madhab. So, as long as we are following, meaning that the scholar who we study under follows a particular madhab, and we stick with that based on the knowledge that is coming to us, no problem. As long as evidence doesn't come to us to the contrary. Because if evidence comes to us to the contrary, which shows us something else, that something that we're doing is wrong, then we are obliged to follow that evidence. And to at that point say, no, I'm going to follow my madhab, even though a clear, authentic hadith is in front of me, I have no reason to doubt it, that is misguidance. That is the essence of misguidance. Because guidance is following Rasulullah That's what the Imams were calling to. That's what they strove to do. But if the madhab becomes, as you refer to it, as a sect, right? Not a school of law, but a sect, then it is dangerous. As I explained to you earlier, that the, the ruling in the Hanafi madhab at one point was that it was not permissible for a Hanafi to marry a Shafi'i. Was that Islam? Was that Islam? Should we follow that? Or at one point all of the madhabs agreed that they should pray different salahs at different times. Was that Islam? 
If we go to the masjids in Damascus, till today, you can find the big masjid in Damascus and the other masjids in Syria. Many of them, they have two mihrabs. One for Hanafis and one for Shafi's. Was that right? That they would have two salahs? No. This was misguidance. This was, this was deviation. And the scholars of the time promoted it. In ignorance. So, the point is, that what we are required to follow is Rasulullah We have to depend on scholars. We can say yes, we must follow Quran and Sunnah as it was understood by the Sahaba. But we as individuals may not have the knowledge or the ability to go back to the sources and get that information. But at least we have it as a concept. This is our goal. This is what we want to do. Now, whoever is available as a scholar to teach us, that's who we follow. If he is a Hanafi, is he a Shafi, whoever he is, he's teaching us, we follow him. We follow what he... But we, we also follow him with an open mind. Meaning, we don't just ask him, can I do this? No, he said, do it, don't do it. This is, he's telling us, you don't do it because Rasulullah said so and so. You may do it because the Prophet said so and so. The Sahaba said so and so. He's teaching you with knowledge. Not just giving you do, don't do, you can... You can't without any kind of understanding. You try to get that understanding. This is the point that we try to do it to seek knowledge, not just blind instructions that we just follow. He said, don't do it, we don't do it. Why? And if we ask him, why did you say we shouldn't do it? And he said, how dare you ask me? You know, you, what are you? Have you ever studied? You've been to Lamar Lana school? You ever been to Azhar? Have you studied in Azhar? Do you know, do you have this kind of knowledge? Can you understand what I have to tell you? Just do what I tell you. This is the wrong, this means, this is a sign to you, leave him. Go find somebody else who is willing to explain to you, to the degree that you can understand. You have the right to ask why. And this is a kind of mentality which you can find, which has even gone beyond even the madhab. I mean, I know myself personally, when I studied in Medina, we had doctors there. Many of them came from different parts of the Arab world. But, you know, when you went in to see the doctor, he checked you out and everything else, then he wrote out a prescription, tablets and so on. Then you ask him, what is this for? What are you asking me this question for? <laughs> Do you understand medicine? Can you understand? He's upset that you dare to ask him what these pills were for. You know, this is a kind of a mentality where, you know, because I am this, you must just follow it blindly. Don't ask any questions. No, this is not Islam. Islam doesn't ask us to do that. We have the right to ask and find out. Okay, so he gives us some explanation which is above our head. Okay, khalas. Okay, fine. Shukran. <laughs> you know, but at least we have the right to ask. And we have the right to get an answer. So when we approach in this manner, then it doesn't matter. If we follow one school or another school, there's no harm. What is Salafi? Really, Salafi is not a school. Because a person may be Salafi and Shafi'i. Maybe Salafi and Hanafi. Maybe Salafi and Ahli Hadith. Salafi is just a, an approach, a concept that we follow Quran and Sunnah as it was understood by the Sahaba. It's not a group. There's no person we can pop up and say, well, he is the founder of the Salafi Madhab. No, no. The founder of the Salafi Madhab is Rasulullah He is the founder. He is the one who spoke about Salaf. It's mentioned in this Hadith. His companion spoke about Salaf. So that term, that concept existed from his time. Can we say any of the companions of the Prophet were Hanafis? Or Shafis? Or Malikis? No. 
So we know that is a later development. Their intention when Imam Abu Hanifa was teaching his students. Do you think he was in his mind plotting, I'm going to be make this, making this madhab now, and I want these people to be followed? <laughs> he didn't want to do that. He was just teaching the deen. He taught the religion. Those who stuck with him, they took from his knowledge and they passed it on. And it came to be known as the Hanafi madhab. It came to be known. This was not his intention. Same thing with Imam Mahdi. This, this weren't their intentions. People made it now into something, you know, very restricted, very... But the reality is that Abu Hanifa's main two students, Muhammad al-Shaybani and Abu Yusuf, both of them studied under Imam Malik. In fact, one of the narrators of Al-Muwatta is Muhammad al-Shaybani. The Muwatta of Imam Malik, one of the main narrators whose uh, narration is recognized as one of the proper narrations of the Muwatta is Muhammad al-Shaybani. They studied under Imam Malik, they studied under the other scholars that existed at the time. And furthermore, it is recorded from them that they differed with Abu Hanifa in more than 50% of his rulings. Abu Hanifa's position was that if you, uh, if you, uh, you couldn't wipe on your socks. That was his position. It was not permissible to wipe on your socks. But, uh, but uh, Abu Yusuf and Muhammad al-Shaybani, they took the position that you could when the narrations came to them. So, the point is that even what people call the Hanafi madhab today is not necessarily the opinions in all areas of Abu Hanifa. Some of them are, many of them aren't. There are a compilation of scholars, you know, throughout the generations that came. Some of them are accurate and correct and improve on the madhab. Some of them are inaccurate and incorrect. And this is in the case of all the madhabs. The point is that we cannot say that any madhab represents the totality of Islam. They were human efforts, and as such, they have human failings. Meaning there was right in them, mostly, but there was some error. All of them, including those who were within the four, as well as those outside of the four, because there are many other scholars, leading scholars, for example, Imam al-Layf, Shafi'i, who studied under Imam Malik for 20 years, went to Egypt, went to to Iraq, studied under the students of Imam Abu Hanifa, wrote a book, then he went to Egypt, he wrote the book there called Al-Hujjah, then he went to Egypt, studied under the students of Imam Layth, he changed his mind and many rulings and opinions, after changing them, after going to Iraq, right, because studying under Imam Malik, he had certain positions. He went to Iraq, studied under the students of Abu Hanifa, changed some positions, wrote a book, combining Al-Hujjah, he went to Egypt, studied under the students of Imam Layf, because Imam Layf had died by the time he got there. Changed his opinions again. Wrote a new book called Al-Um. Changed it. Up. That, that wasn't considered to be anything wrong. No problem with it. And in fact, after studying under Imam Layf's students, he said, you know, Imam Layf was a greater jurist than Imam Malik. But his students, who were weak, caused his madhab to be lost. So just because, again, people think, the four, these were the great imams. Hey, the others were great imams just like them. Imam Shafi is in a position, of course, you and I sitting back, 
We're not in a position to say, yeah, Imam Laith was greater than Imam Shafi. No, no, because these are people on another level. But Imam Shafi was on that level. He studied under both of them. He could say, and he said, that Imam Laith was a greater jurist than Imam Malik. But we don't know. Who knows Imam Laith? You ask them, have you ever heard of Imam Laith? The Laith Imam have? <laughs> what is this? You know, you're making up something new? You know? But the point is that it died out. We don't even know about it anymore. Actually, it was absorbed by Imam Shafi. The basic, you know, the, 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 the unique rulings were absorbed by Imam Shafi and became a part of the Shafi Matab anyway. Uh, since the Prophet never called himself a Sunni, then is it wrong for us to call ourselves Sunnis? Well, the use of the term Sunni came up when people started to distinguish themselves as Shiites. You know, when they became, you know, Shiites became, uh, to, in order to distinguish and say that, yeah, I'm not a Shiite, the term Sunni came up. So it was only used to distinguish between Sunni and Shiite, to distinguish that you're not from the Shia. But uh, Sunni Muslim, we are Muslims. Israeli Muslims and others. If he was an ordinary human, like us, did Muhammad have a conscience? And did he need to reason out and make judgment between good and bad? Yes, he did. He had a conscience like us. And he did reason out. In fact, he made some errors in his reasoning and Allah corrected him in the Quran itself. And we have record of him also in the Sunnah making some reasoning about some of the things of this life, the dunya things, and him finding himself incorrect by Allah's will. Allah clarified whatever, wherever he made, had incorrect reasoning, Allah made it clear so nobody would follow his line of reasoning uh, and it become misguidance. But instead Allah corrected it showing that he was a human being and at the same time maintained his sunnah as guidance. But the Prophet's Salatul Janazah conducted in the same way as for us. Well, at the time the Sahaba prayed separately. Now, this was a situation which caught them. They sort of didn't really know what to do. And um, the narrations concerning how they did the Sahaba, the, the Janazah, actually, to be sure, I'm not really certain. But I, I have a vague recollection that they had prayed separately. There's something that, um, inshallah, maybe can be researched and the answer be gotten. In any case, the janazah, what is required, is what the Prophet ﷺ taught us. He taught us uh, a particular way, uh, which is, you know, gathering the people with the rows and the number of takbirs and what to be said. He taught us all of that. And that's what we have to do. What is your idea of tasbih, the particulars? number that is being recited in relationship to Tasbih Fatima uh, which is proven uh, I don't know this, the saying Subhanallah 33 times Alhamdulillah 33 times Allahu Akbar 33 times or and the, uh, the, the uh, hundredth time saying uh, La ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika la this is uh, from the Sunnah. Uh, the idea of doing it on beads, uh, we can say this is against the Sunnah. The Sunnah was to do it on the fingertips. This is what the Prophet ﷺ and his companions did. 
If anybody prescribes to us doing any numbers, you know, in terms of how many times to do tasbih, how many times to read fatiha, and these kind of things, we do not accept it unless it has been stated by Prophet Muhammad Only he has the right to give us numbers. If you personally, on your own, decide that, you know, you want to recite tasbih, you know, more often, right, because there is a narration where the companions who didn't have money uh, to donate to the jihad, they mentioned that the richer people were gaining reward and we were losing out on it. And Prophet prescribed for them a similar set of tasbih and he said that with doing that you will get a similar reward. You know, except for those who do more. So he left it open. If a person wants to do more on their own, they can do more. You know? But once you have done more, this is your own personal thing. The fact that you did more and what you were seeking from Allah came true or came through, you cannot now go to people and start to prescribe for them that you do this many and this is going to happen. You don't have the right to do it. It's not like medicine. You know, you try this one out, you try that one out, this one works, okay, this we use this, you recommend it to everybody else. No. Prophet is the only one who has the authority to give us numbers. If there was no trace of Muhammad from before, how come the previous divine book spoke about the coming of the last Prophet Muhammad The previous divine book spoke about it because Allah revealed to the previous prophets that Muhammad was coming. The books before, the prophets before, they all warned about Dajjal. Does that mean that Dajjal was existing before? No. But Allah revealed to him that Dajjal was coming. So all of the prophets warned about the coming of Dajjal. If the Quran came as revelation to him, what about the Hadith? The Hadith also came as revelation. Nowhere is it said how Hadith came. Yes, there is. If you read Sahih Bukhari, it explains in the first chapter about how revelation came. Please pick up the book, Sahih Bukhari, and read and find out how revelation came. How did he know from beginning to end how to do practical things in life? He knew it by revelation. Revelation told him what to do, what not to do. Some things were left, he made ijtihad, he made the wrong ijtihad, Allah corrected him, you know, confirmed the right way. But whatever was told to us of the religion, this was all through revelation from Allah. Do you believe in the night of Mi'raj? Did Prophet ﷺ really make a journey to see what dwells in the heaven and the hell? Reported uh, this to us, or was it just a dream? It really took place. We believe that Prophet ﷺ, uh, in the night of Mi'raj, he was taken on the Buraq from Mecca to, to Jerusalem. And from there he was taken up in the Mi'raj. Actually the Mi'raj is the vehicle which took him up into the heavens. His ascension into the heavens. It wasn't to see heaven and hell. That also happened in the process. But it was to take him up to the highest point in creation. Allah communicated to him directly there. Revealed to him certain verses of the Quran. And prescribed salah during that period of ascension.
and it was a means of also comforting him because of his uh, sufferings that he had gone through in that same year where his wife had died he had been rejected in Taif you know, so he had suffered a number of losses Abu Talib also died and didn't accept Islam so Allah took him up part of that was also giving him relief giving him a surety strengthening him for the rest of the message to come <clears throat> I think inshallah we'll stop here subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika ashadu wa la ilaha la ant astaghfiruka wa natubu alaykum